are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, welcome back everyone. This is The Truth Perspective. It is June 13th, is that it? I'm your host, Aaron Daly, co-host, Elon Martin. Hey everyone. And we've got side editors, Carolyn. Hi. Shane, Lachance. Hi everybody. Welcome, co-hosts. Thank you. Today we are going to be continuing our discussion from last week. Picking up where we left off, talking some stuff we didn't get to, maybe talking about some stuff we did get to, and expanding on it. And that topic is the new book published by Red Pill Press, Personality Shaping Through Positive Disintegration, by Dr. Kazimir Dabrowski. First published in 1967, but just as relevant today as it was back then. In fact, I think even probably more relevant because the world has gone even more downhill since it was in the 60s, and we could use a little personality shaping individually and collectively. <laughs> we'll get into that, too, near the end of the show. Well, what's nice about the personality shaping is, you know, we, we kind of talk a lot about the aspects of uh, pornology and just how devastating it is on society and, and all of us. And, you know, it's nice to have uh, another picture where we can look at, you know, we're looking at the destructive part of pornology. And then there's also this constructive part of building the personality. So it's nice to have that aspect to look at to kind of balance things out. Yeah. It gives you a bit of hope. And it also gives you the idea that no matter how destructive and, and oppressive your, your environment is, and Lord knows it's an oppressive, destructive environment around us, that anything can be material to improve yourself. If you have the will and the understanding. Well, that reminded me of a quote. This is, this is from the book. We're going to be reading some more quotes from the book and discussing them. The book like of that. Kurowski. <laughs> no, we can't, we can't go that far. Well, maybe. Um, so he's talking about having an educational team. We talked about the advisor last week. Basically just a, a mentor or advisor to help people through the process of personality shaping. And um, going basically, you know, just helping people through the struggles that they have in life and learning how to deal with what's going on in their heads and in their emotions and getting a handle on them and realizing what it all means and how to put it all together. So he's saying that an educational team is fundamental, quote, not only for the development of the individual himself, but also for the whole society. Since the possession of the greatest possible number of matured personalities by a society is decisive for its proper development, for its place in the family of societies, for its future. So a kind of global perspective on personality development, we talked about it last week and just hinted at it right now, is that without people who are themselves developed, society won't be developed. And if society is to progress as opposed to regress and destroy itself, we're going to need some people who can be called persons, can be called humans, because as it is, we've talked about it a lot, the, the leaders of society 
of governments, of education, of academia, you know, wherever you go, you find people who just aren't very good people. Well, the, the other problem with that is, is that when you do end up with someone like that with a, uh, you know, Martin Luther King or anybody else who pricks the conscience of this society, it makes them uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. since our first goal seems to be our comfort, it is very easy for that society to turn on these would-be advisors. They don't see the value of them. You know, when you mentioned Martin Luther King, uh, what comes to mind is that there are so few people who have fully developed personalities in the sense that we're probably thinking, mm-hmm. or at least very highly functional and uh, and beings or people who have consciences who are willing to kind of take it to its logical end. Mm-hmm. Um Having said that, uh, you know, if if there are even just a few of them or a few more in the world, um, think about, you know, it reminds me of that JFK quote about um, how a single person can make such a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it would only require a few more. Well, it's funny that, you know, we have to go back in history to find these leaders, at least in United States history. Uh because we don't see them in the U.S. anyway, um, you know, today, hey, we, we only have to, we only have the uh, leaders of the past, like, like we're talking about JFK and yeah. Martin Luther King. Yeah, it's almost like society has been structured to damp down and, and, you know, obstruct the development of anybody who could fill that role. Well, Dabrowski talks about that, how... It is the lowest level of humanity that tends to aspire to positions of power. I mean, this is... What does that sound like? (laughs) This is Ponderology. Well, that's what Lopuchevsky talked about. But when you think about the consequences of that and what that actually means, so you've got this whole system that is based on the lowest level of human development. And it's like you were saying, Elon, when, or and Carolyn, when someone comes along that goes against that, Naturally, they will be opposing intrinsic, essential parts of that system because they are just fundamentally different and at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And so that will target them as an enemy of the system. Mm -hmm. It's like the Matrix. (laughs) You know, the whoever goes against that system gets targeted. And so it puts the the person with an actual developed personality into uh, a dangerous and weak position because they're going up against everyone essentially. Right. Plus, there's always that that existential fear of those in power, the, of constantly the fear of losing that power. So mm-hmm. they're alert to these threats because, on some level, they know that this sort of magnetic developed personality that offers these options of hope and improvement will attract others who have that sort of nascent in them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a bad position when you when you've got a, a position you're trying to hang on to. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, when uh, when we have these psychopaths in power, and when there's no real vast understanding of psychopathy, and when there's also no when that meets a lack of understanding about our own development, when people are in crisis, they're going to seek uh, some type of stability, and. And the psychopath kind of presents this picture of, you know, extreme, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a false picture, but that's what they present, this, this rock, yeah. you know, that's immo- this immovable rock. Yeah. And 
And people will latch on to that because one, we don't understand our own development, and two, we don't understand what we're what we're relying on. Yep. Yep. No, they they present the, because they have no internal conflicts, so of course they look confident, and you know, and they move forward, and they make decisive, you know, judgments and decisions, and everybody goes, "Oh, I want to be like that," but they don't understand the interior, you know structure that creates that and and how destructive it can be because there is no sense of of deliberation or wondering or questioning your motives or the consequences of what you do they just see the outer shell that just says this person's got it together i want to be like them by the same token uh among people who are fully developed there is a uh, an attraction or a a recognition of someone like a king like a jfk uh, like a, like a, dare I say, uh, Putin, uh, and, and people, um, strike up an intense loyalty, uh, to this person. So it, maybe it's even on an unconscious level, they're able to recognize a few things. Um, but you know, like you were saying, Shane and Carolyn, there's also, you know, for lack of development, of vulnerability among many people to get sucked up into charisma and perceived strength and and uh, and know-how. Well, the, the two look eerily like each other and without the ability to discern or at least see if words and actions match up and the consequences of those words and actions. I mean, you know, Stalin was a pretty decisive dude too, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. So it's it's having the ability to to make comparisons over a period of time to say whether or not this is the true or the false confidence and leadership. Yeah. That, and that's kind of one of the, the problems fundamental to the theory, not a problem of the theory, but that kind of comes out of looking at things in this way from positive disintegration that a person can only really see what's at their own level. Mm-hmm. Like I read that quote from last week about the the receptors and the you know the the perception receptors. So you can only bring in, we can only perceive a certain segment or slice of reality, depending on the level that we're at. So to a to a person that who just hasn't developed him or herself very much, they won't be able to tell the difference very much between uh, you know a, a strong psychopathic leader and a strong developed leader. It's on, and so it, it, it's it kind of it's a it's kind it's of a tricky. bad situation. Yeah, it's a tricky situation. It's a because the well, you know, not necessarily because it's if that if a good person is in power, they will be doing good stuff. So it, it, regardless of whether people can see it or not, um, or the difference between the two types, they're still getting stuff done. Well, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, and you know, looking back at uh, our episodes in history, you know, we can see it was when J.K. came to power. You know, is is remarkable because uh, the the country was pushing for war, and you know, war was was right you know right at the brink, and and you know, all Americans were you know really into it, and in a matter you know in a very very short time. Uh, when you look back at JFK's speeches and him talking about peace and that this peace was uh, a real possibility, he changed the tide of American thinking uh, in a remarkable short amount of time. And, you know, it makes you think about, um, I don't know if, if 
you know, if you could describe JFK as a, a fully developed personality, but uh, in the in the Dabrowskian sense, but you know, he did have uh, a conscience, and when you have leaders like that, um, you know, they inspire conscience in others, mm-hmm. and and I think, uh, I mean, Gurdjieff even he. he he defined a remarkable man as somebody who can resp- uh, inspire consciousness in, in others, and mm-hmm. you know we, we can see that kind of um, that snowball effect happen when when these types of leaders uh, come into power. And also, possibly that those who were clamoring for war were part of the system and part of the government, and he was able to reach past and down to the average citizen who really wasn't all that keen on the idea and inspire them. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, would then threaten those in power because, you know, their chances of being reelected if this had carried forward were just about zero. So, of course, you're going to protect your position. I'm going to do something that we neglected to do last week and actually give a description of the book itself that we were talking about. So, um, so in the book, it's called Personality Shaping Through Positive Disintegration. So... The main concept is about personality and how to get it. What is personality and what are the methods um, to get there? And then what are some examples of it? So the book starts out, first chapter is just the definition of personality. So there, Dabrowski lays out what he, how he defines personality and the different traits that it has. So for Dabrowski, personality has certain, let's call them universal and eternal qualities or traits. So these are qualities that will be found throughout the the history of of human individuals throughout humanity, regardless so, of their culture or yeah. nationality. Right. So so there is this this normative universal ideal of personality. Now, it, of course, it will take very different forms in certain senses, depending on the time you're you know the the culture you're born in, the time you're born. And but those will be kind of secondary to what's what's going on be, beneath the surface of that. So Dabrowski isn't a, a moral relativist. He's not a postmodernist. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, don't worry about that if you have a, an aversion to those ideas, or as big an aversion to them as we do. But <laughs> so some of the what are some of those qualities? Well, there's certain men, mental attitudes or qualities. So he he gives a few examples like multilateral knowledge. So this is like an interest in in a whole variety of different sources and bits of information and, and knowledge. So it's not limited to, you know, one certain hobby or one certain interest. And you'll often find that with people, you know, you, you'll meet them and they're interested in one thing and really only one thing. Like uh, I've met a couple of guys who are just interested in guns and hunting and that's it. Like it's all they're all they'll talk about. They're not interested in anything else. And it's pretty much for their entire life. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, they'll watch TV or something and have their favorite shows. And they'll but, be watch shows on guns and Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, um, but a person, uh, a personality has a much wider range of interests. And, uh, because you, you need that really, if you're going to be doing anything helpful for the world, you need to be interested and knowledgeable about the world and about people and about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that gets to another couple of the mental qualities, um, knowledge of the self and knowledge of others. Because they're intimately tied together. You can't have a great knowledge of others if you don't have a great knowledge of yourself. It's how you're going to realize what another person's going through if you can't visualize it or experience it yourself, or if you haven't experienced it for yourself, or if you don't if you don't know something about yourself, how can you 
How can you see it in another person? It's just another part of that expansion of the base of your knowledge. And then the third quality he gives is independence of thought, feeling, and action. So to be able to think, feel, and act, not based on what anyone necessarily tells you to do, but from your own forces, from from your own rational deliberation and based on conscience, to be able to make a choice that your whole society might be against, your family might be against, your friends might be against, but you know it's right, and so you go with it. And again, that is a that is a quality that is lacking in most people. Of course, everyone thinks that they do exactly what they want to do. We've talked about that before, but it's just, unfortunately, it's just not true. Well, we can maybe read some quotes to get into that later on. Second uh, kind of broad category is moral qualities, moral or social. So he talks about honesty, basically the, the capacity f- for honesty with others and oneself. Now, of course, we've talked about honesty with everyone not necessarily being a good thing, and that's true. Well, maybe it's the ability to measure how much mm-hmm. honesty is appropriate. Yep. And also just to be, and I think the most important part of this is probably the, the honesty towards oneself, mm-hmm. not telling yourself lies about yourself or the world. No. So to be able to get through through all that, all the self lies that we tell ourselves about why we're doing what we're doing and what we're actually doing and lies about our relationships and our motivations and just everything about our lives because we lie to ourselves constantly. And that's a big thing of what Gurdjieff was talking about. It's also, you can find the ideas in modern cognitive psychology too. I mean, Timothy Wilson has written a couple of great books about it. Um, Strangers to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How we, we basically think we know what's going on in our minds and why we do things. And more often than not, if not always, it's not for the reasons that we think. And we've come up with stories for ourselves and rationalizations to explain why we're doing what we're doing that, uh, you know, have no real resemblance to, to the truth. So how does that look like for us when we, uh, when we lie to ourselves? When does it come up? Everyone's well, on the hot seat right now. <laughs> I, I think like whenever, whenever there is, you know, this, uh, if there's this internal conflict, mm-hmm. when that presents itself, you know, we have, we have basically this choice to make, you know, whether to recognize that there is this hypocrisy inside, there is this conflict or to suppress it, deny it and to, to, you know, basically lie to ourselves about it, that, you know, that this conflict doesn't exist. Yeah. Or it's, or tell yourself a comforting story that explains why it's the thing you want to do is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, when I, um, when I review this material and I think of lying to oneself or, you know, I think of a personality and ego, um, I think of, uh, times, you know, when I might be oversensitive to something or, or misperceiving what someone has said or not said, uh, and, and then deciding that they're evil or mean or inconsiderate. And, and, you know, and maybe on some level there, there is a, a, a level of truth to a lack of consideration on the other person's part. But, you know, certainly as you were saying, recognizing the conflict, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing, oh, this is what I'm feeling right now. And it's, it's really uncomfortable. And I can decide. Uh, I can decide how to think about it in the moment, or or work through it, or come back to it later, and not deny that these are 
the thoughts and feelings I'm having regarding it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's uncomfortable because it's so much easier to, to project the blame on the other person. And, and you feel good. You feel good. It's expedient. Um, Well, it's also hard to admit to ourselves that we don't necessarily have the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. So this comes up, especially in relationships, just any kind of relationship. We might say something that can be really mean and, or criticize someone for something and say, well, why did you, why did you, you know, why did you say that? And you think about it, well, and you've got a perfectly good reason for saying it, of course. I was just trying to help. Yeah. (laughs) When actually there's a lot more going on behind the surface. Mm -hmm. And one of which is that you probably just don't have a very good idea of, um, healthy social interactions and to realize that something is really inappropriate to say in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. Don't know how to say it right. And I think, I think a lot of it too, uh, might've mentioned in, you know, as one of the previous shows is just these, uh, we don't know how to express our emotions, you know, about things that bother us or things that, you know, things that come up. And when we bury those things down, it's going to come out in other ways. It's going to come out through, you know, covert aggression or, you know, little snide remarks. And, and it comes out that way because something's there. And, you know, if we can learn how to say, Hey, you know what, this made me angry and this is why. And, you know, that, that can be a huge thing. You're asking to remake society that (laughs) because, you know, anybody who even might want to do that, if they don't have a safe environment to do that in, it's just like, you might gain a little bit from the self, the internal understanding that, yes, you have these feelings, but if you have no way of resolving them or dealing with them or airing them out, then I suppose that little bit of understanding better than nothing, but it doesn't, doesn't be so much as it could have in the long run. And, and yet the hope is that in responding in such a way, um, it would elicit a uh, an effort or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the hope. That in, yeah. in being sincere, not going on the attack, that there is a um, a kind of response in kind that comes to a, a greater understanding, uh, um, a higher level of communication. Well, I guess this this would be where the role of the advisor comes in. And an advisor would be someone who is of such a level of development that they could take this communication and not be offended and see it for what it is and offer the guidance to deal with it properly. And then, you know, you get back to the whole idea of a village to raise a child that not only would you have your parents, but you would have an entire circle of these people who have an understanding, who have a further level of development, who can help you along. You know, so, you know, that's, it's a, you know, so many people have, don't have that. It's sad. In, in therapeutic settings uh, where, you know, traditional talk therapy and, other types of therapy don't work. Often, what's very effective is is group therapy, and this doesn't necessarily mean you know a, a group of psychologists sitting around, <laughs> although maybe it should. Um, but it's 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 the person's peers, yeah. And you know they're they're basically saying how the person is acting, how it affected them, and you know what what their perceptions are. And yep. you know we could probably take note of that and uh, and apply it in our own lives, and things would you know, be much better, but, you know, we're told, you know, don't, you know, brush things under the rug, turn the other cheek and all all these other uh, uh, thoughts that just end up suppressing, you know, the problems. Well, just to, to give uh, a real like concrete example, you just mentioned like a group of therapists all doing group therapy together. But if you just, if you look at social work or just 
um, a person who on the surface is doing something for others and giving their lives for others. And um, it can, it could be through social work or therapy or any kind of philanthropism. Now, if you ask that person why they're doing it, they may have a very high opinion of themselves or high opinion of what they're doing. Like, uh, well, I'm doing, I'm just doing it because I care so much about other people and I just want to, you know, want to give so much. And that may be true, but it may not Mm -hmm. now, because especially when we look at therapists and psychologists, many of them aren't doing it for the reasons that they may tell themselves or think. It could be that they just... In it, first of all, in school, they just realized that they liked psychology and kind of just drifted towards that profession, or they might have had a um, a drive to do it for the prestige or the the money, and or, because that is a position of power over over someone's life, over a lot of people's lives, to be able to to uh, arrange them and experiment on them in certain ways in order to to change them. That's a that takes a lot of responsibility. To, to put yourself well, um, ideally, it should take a lot of responsibility to 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 put yourself in that position position and do the job responsibly. But that isn't always the case. So this is an this can be an example of a lie to the self is that oh I'm doing these this for the most noble reason and I just have the best intentions for what I'm doing when really the motivation for why you're actually doing it is inherently selfish and egotistical and. So that that's just one example of a lie that a person can tell themselves about why they're doing what they're doing. And it's basically a way of phrasing things to yourself to put yourself in the best light possible because we don't like to see ourselves in a negative light. And so we're kind of our, our own best kind of PR teams. Actually, Dubrovsky has something to say about it. Um he well, he says we can change and improve the group in which we live. Therefore, only if we know how to de- develop ourselves. Otherwise, we vitiate the social work. It turns into pseudo work, a cover for attitudes and aims which often have nothing to do with real social work. Among and I'm skipping down here. Among so-called social workers, one may distinguish several groups. One group is comprised of people with small capabilities or complete indolence whose inclination to social work is based on an unconscious tendency to seek care for themselves. Mm -hmm. Another group consists of individuals for whom social work is just an embellishment of their professional work or an opportunity for, whoops, sorry, I'm on a Kindle and it's misbehaving. (laughs) What can we say? Technology. Get a real book. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it says like board members and philanthropists just want to sort of improve their you know, mm-hmm. CV and have a, another credit. And uh, and there was a third one and I can't find it. So well, you have you have these uh, different types going into you know these helping professions and you know at the worst there's these pathological types who will seek uh, power over others like like Harrison just mentioned and you know I think there is that category too where. A person might experience, you know, various traumas uh, early in life, and these things are, are there unresolved. And you know, there is maybe this unconscious mechanism that where they seek this information, but if they don't apply it to themselves, mm-hmm. they're going to be harming uh, the, the people that they're treating because mm-hmm. yeah. they're going to be projecting their own issues onto yeah. them and trying to fix them as a means of not facing their own stuff. Oh my God, yeah. that is so much of the whole therapy yeah. profession. There's just people who are really trying to fix themselves up. Yeah, so when you do go for therapy, it, it's good to see uh, it, 
that the therapist has gone through that process and, you know, has, has done, you know, some, some work on themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the problem of the, the psychologists that end up coming up with these grand theories and their theories just reflect where they're at. Now, of course, that'll apply to anyone. Mm-hmm. So this applies to Dabrowski as, as much as anyone else. Now, but from looking at Dabrowski's theory and kind of like in depth, it looks like he was probably a fairly highly developed individual himself. As opposed to Freud, say. Yeah, because then you get to someone like Freud, where their entire theory is based on their own inner makeup projected onto everyone. And then that that's just, it's kind of a whitewashing of humanity or even kind of a, a gross, nasty greenwashing of humanity where the all the nasty stuff within the, the psychologist's own psyche gets projected out and... Um, kind of equalized over over all of humanity, which is a total misrepresentation of what and made human nature is like. Yeah, and made a yeah. norm to strive to. Exactly. And help us. we actually saw this too with uh, Dabrowski's theory itself, not from Dabrowski, but one of his students, uh, Pachowski, uh, he, um, he's known more in like the gifted uh, children's circles and you know, he's, he's taken Dabrowski's work and uh, really kind of like just take uh, cherry picked different ideas and left out the whole context of of the theory that gives it meaning and um, so so one of the things that he kind of focused on was the uh, overexcitabilities and uh, described it in terms of you know these gifted children will have these overexcitabilities and uh, all all these extra energies will uh, be kind of channeled into uh, their whatever gifted area. And that in itself isn't an inaccurate application of Dabrowski's theory. But uh, what, what Pachowski did was, you know, he, he removed the, the idea of uh, disintegration, uh, that there were lower levels. So, you know, there's just this kind of idea that um, there, there was no concept of the, the personality ideal really so you were saying these children have this special whatever it is just now when you say gifted does that mean intelligence or music or whatever it, it would depend on whichever over excitability the the child uh had so so his his theories were couched in trying to like cotton wrap these kids and keep them safe and protected and never well, let them get that was to any kind of you know, headspace where they might be depressed or sad and have to deal with themselves. Uh, very much. Um, there is a, I actually, I grabbed one of a, an article that talked about uh, Pachowski's interpretation. So there was like definitions of the various overexcitabilities and then different strategies of, of dealing with them. Uh, the definitions, uh, although there was some influence from Pachowski, uh, you know, they were, pretty pretty much similar to Dabrowski. So as an example, there was the sensual overexcitability. Uh, sensual always expressed as a heightened experience of sensual pleasure or displeasure emanating from sight, smell, touch, taste, and hearing. Those with sensual OE, overexcitability, uh, have a far more expansive experience from their sensual input than the average person. And you know, there's a little bit more, uh, but the strategy... For, for dealing this was uh, wherever possible, create an environment which limits offensive stimuli and provide comfort, uh, provide appropriate opportunities for being in the limelight, 
by giving uh, unexpected attention, uh, facilitating creative and dramatic productions, which have an audience. These individuals literally feel the recognition that comes from being in the limelight. That's a recipe for spoiling. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear God. Well, you can see... Um, I mean, the the intention's right. You you know, if these children need their energies to be channeled, but they still have to be people. Well, and and they have to know how to be able to process and deal with uh, these intense feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that's kind of the the impression that I had from that was that you know it's taking away those opportunities to you know really learn from uh, learn like from to those, resolve the conflicts. Yeah, just yeah. um, by you know take removing it from the environment well what just from that example and from a bit of the other things that i've read about let's say gifted children it sounds like what these folks are doing who have kind of latched on to dabrowski's theory is taken its multi-dimensional nature and made it one-dimensional and then flattened the multi-level down to one level so so if you take that approach to an over-excitable child, essentially, then it's pretty much a, a catch-all, one one solution for every possible problem approach to it. Okay, well, this is what you've got to do. Well, it doesn't take into account any of the specific cir- circumstances of these individual children and what they might need in that moment. Because sometimes, yes, it might it may be a good thing to put on a little theatrical production with an audience. Sometimes it might not be. Some, and like you said, sometimes it might be important for them to have some kind of negative stimuli in order to learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they're, if they're just totally, um, if their system is totally overwhelmed by something, then it might be a good idea to, to calm that down a bit. But it's, it's a complicated process that can't be, can't be fixed by this one-size-fits-all approach. And if you're focusing only on the gift or the talent, then you're not you're not creating a well-rounded human being mm-hmm. at all. And that's like when you were asking Carolyn about the gifted children thing, it seems like when you look into it, or at least from my experience with it, the gifted children thing, it kind of is pretty much limited to IQ. At least that's the way most people approach it. And then they might bring in little aspects from here and there, but we've got this group of gifted children that maybe gifted intellectually or even in another way, but it pretty much has nothing substantial to do with, with Dabrowski's work. Yeah. With higher levels or mm-hmm. you know, yeah. conscience and yeah. Uh, it, when you were describing, you know, that the theory had kind of just have this more uni level mm-hmm. uh, description and, and you were talking earlier about how uh, individuals may, the, the psychologist who, you know, has these theories, it may reflect their own internal landscape. And, you know, it seemed that Pachowski, you know, he, that, that that's pretty, that may be an accurate description. Um, he was also into, he, he kind of aligned uh, Dabrowski's ideas with Maslow, uh, his hierarchy of needs and, and self-actualization. When you look at uh, Maslow's theory and really, that can apply to somebody who's integrated at a lower level. Mm-hmm. You know, th- all those things don't um, don't necessarily equate with uh, higher signs of higher development. Um, one of the one of the levels is uh, esteem, and uh, that you, you know, you must, before you reach self actualization, you know, you, you must feel uh, self respected and 
and have approval from your peers and yada, yada, yada. Um, and you can kind of see these ideas uh, you know, creeping in with uh, Pachowski's theory and, and, and others too uh, that have kind of um, really gone into like any kind of ideas about so, uh, child development. Well, it almost sounds like Maslow's top one, self-actualization, is where Dabrowski would start almost. I don't know. I've I haven't I can't really remember all the details yeah. of Maslow, but there might be something to that. Yeah, there might be something looking to. Well, just to go in another direction, I don't know if you want to move on from here, but if we're looking for examples of somebody who pretty much from the evidence did embody this self-actualization, then you would look at or, you know, this personality development, you would want to look at Julius Caesar. Right? Here was a man who was incredibly intelligent, interested in everything had the sureness of his own decisions, but he was willing to take counsel. You know, all of these qualities that, that he's ticked off, we can seem to find in, in his life and, and in his works. And and uh, he certainly had a huge effect on history. Mm-hmm. Caesar's a tough case for me simply because all the... We- all we've got to look at is kind of like the external of what he's doing. Yeah. And so, of course, we can we can read all that into it. We can reject. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have his, his diaries to read to, True. <laughs> to see what was really going on in his head. Yeah. So so I, I, I agree with you. I think that if you do look at you know what, what we can kind of divine or discern about what was going on behind the surface, we can see that. Um, that's kind of one of the problems with with just trying to get a handle on this by looking at, at, uh, at individuals is that it takes a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of data to be able to look at a person from outside and to, yeah. and to categorize this. That's why Dabrowski had this, when he worked with a person individually, he had this whole system of, of tests and, um, like a, a an autobiography test where the, you know, the person would write down, uh, their autobiography, where they where they uh, describe their their thoughts and and feelings about different concepts and ideas and emotions and different kinds of physiological tests, all to get to get an idea of what's kind of going on with this person. And well, just to to get on, uh, I'll s- skip a bit ahead in my description of the contents of the book, but in the the last major chapter. Dabrowski looks at five historical personalities, as he calls them. So he basically he read a lot about uh, about people and just famous people from the past and and from all different fields. So and then analyze their biography and see if see what he could see in their lives and in their diaries about what they were going through and and uh, how it applied to to positive disintegration. So a few of the ones that he he gives in the book, and we've included a few that were unpublished before. So he talks about Michelangelo, Beethoven, Kierkegaard, and Unamuno, two uh, philosophers, um, Augustine, um, St. Augustine, Augustine? St. Augustine. (laughs) Yeah, Augustine, um, a famous Christian theologian, and um, Clifford Beers and Władysław David. Sorry, Polish guy. Um, so, psycho- so psychologists, artists, musicians, philosophers um, kind of takes a little re- representative sample of each of those, and then looks at their life, their lives in terms of 
what they were going through and the different um, disintegrations they had, possible secondary re- reintegrations. And but even those, so the people he describes, usually when when you're reading one of the cases, he'll he's, he'll talk about the kind of positive aspects of their growth and their development. But then he'll, he'll like for Michelangelo or Beethoven, he'll say, well, they never ended up achieving their full personality. There was, and even Augustine, August, <laughs> how do you pronounce it? Augustine. 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 Uh-huh. I say Augustine too. Here's, here's Augustine. I think, I think it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but there were aspects of their personalities that weren't for, fully developed. Like Augustine never had, he never had any close friends at the end of his life. He was still pretty, um, uh, kind of shut off, kind of, kind of a jerk. Um, a lot of, a lot of these people did have kind of these negative qualities. So even in the, even in the, a lot of the people where we can see these processes going on there, they, they died works in progress. And that's actually, um, it's reflected in the cover art that we used for the book, um, a sculpture, uh, sculpture by Michelangelo, one of his so-called slaves. And these were either unfinished sculptures or, um, purposely unfinished sculptures. So it looks like these figures are actually just like emerging out of the, out of the stone. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's a, it's a good kind of visual metaphor for the process because we essentially do shape ourselves out of the material that we're, that we're given. And it is an ongoing process and oftentimes an unfinished process. And which is kind of depressing <laughs> at the same time that, uh, well, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Start somewhere. And, um, you know, all of this reminds me of a, a passage I read recently, uh, by Gurdjieff, um, describing how one can take snapshots of oneself at various times, uh, recognizing, you know, when I was feeling this or when I was doing that, uh, kind of giving your, yourself, uh, your own picture of, uh, of who you are and in, in all of your, um, in all of your greatness and all of your shittiness. And, um, unfortunately I think for many of us, uh, we won't have the opportunity to, uh, to be evaluated by peers or have anybody um, at the level of a Dubrowski or even a really kind of uh, necessarily competent therapist, although there are many who are out there. Um, So I guess what we need to do is look at how we can apply this material to ourselves and to those who are closest to us in, uh, in helping to shape our personalities. Um, And I, I think that, this book uh, and a lot of G's work gives us some of those tools. That moves on to the next sec- section of uh, traits and qualities of personality. Good. The Well, uh, we're talking about the moral qualities. He also lists courage and love and also the desire to perfect oneself and to help others per- perfect themselves. Now, Gurdjieff said something s- similar with his five Oblagolnian strivings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah, the desire always to to perfect oneself and to 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 be that influence in other people's lives too, like you were saying, his defi- his definition of a remarkable man, Shane. Um, so yeah, that's that's another aspect um, we mentioned last week, the religious aspect. So there is a, a kind of spirituality that seems to always come in the development of personality and adapt and an adapting towards death. And the idea of death and one's own death. 
and death in general, not an avoidance of it, but a, a, like a deep contemplation of it and what it means and how it will then inspire and motivate how you live your life in order to eventually die. That's something that we see um, in in a lot of you know different religions and uh, teachings is. You know, uh, Carlos Castaneda talked about you know keeping death at your on your left shoulder, and or maybe it was your right shoulder. I'm not sure, but um, but yeah, keeping that kind of front and center, and you know, we are very removed from from death in so many aspects, uh, not just in our personal relationships, but you know, even when it gets down to our food. Um, you know, we have these uh, factory farms that do everything, and you know, it's 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 all seemingly you know uh, uh distant to us and you know it comes prepackaged. and uh one of the uh, good experiences that that i had was uh, uh working on a farm for a little while and um and uh, doing some some reading about um you know raising animals and what was involved with uh with with all of that and <clears throat> uh one of the things that i came across was this description of um these all these these uh, town they're called pig killings, and it sounds it sounds pretty awful uh, when when you, when you first hear about it. And uh, what it, what would happen would be you know a community would uh, get together and they'd you know it'd be during the fall or whatever, and they would have a pig that they would slaughter. And as a community, then they they do the the butchering and the cooking and all that. And the initial response was oh this is this is you know this is really disturbing but when you uh when you go through it and when you see uh, that there's like social bonds behind be- being created and as well as uh you know respect for the animal and you know you recognize that this animal died so that you, you could you could live and, and in order to give that um some kind of meaning you, know, you have to recognize uh that that this process, that there's this process that's involved and, um, and we're not separated from it. So, and that's, that was just my little tangent. Yeah. Well, uh, along those lines, you know, I'm reminded yet again of Gurdjieff and the last hour of life. And he's got a, a very interesting passage about, uh, valuing every moment, uh, that you have available to you to, um, to be a value to others, uh, and to live as though, um, death can happen at any time because actually it's true that it can. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not a comfortable thought necessarily, but it doesn't have to be as uncomfortable. It can be used as a, a motivator. Um, so just another way that uh, we're, we're getting more overlap here, I think. Well, the rest of the book is the next two chapters are pretty much uh, an introduction to just the main ideas of integration, disintegration, um, the multi-level disintegration, uni-level disintegration. So pretty much the just the aspects of the theory, the different terminology, and then how they apply to, to personality and how they can lead eventually to personality. And then in the fourth chapter, the methods. So this one was, uh, this is a really interesting chapter. Um, so describing just how, how this actually applies in in a person's life. Um, so 
with self-education, the advisor, like we mentioned, how these different processes go on during different periods of our lives. So usually the, for example, puberty and, um, kind of like the mid and the midlife crisis, the, the climacteric period, as Dabrowski calls it, um, where these, the, our, our inner structures tend to get shaken up kind of against our will. And they're, they're kind of, they're good opportunities. They don't always turn out, um, in the most positive way though. So for example, um, puberty can be, uh, a very integrating process on a low level where at first it appears like it can be a positive thing and it can, where all these new kind of, um, new inner, um, qualities and just dimensions of, of life and just new aspects of a personality can, can come out. And But at, at the same time, it's very chaotic and there's a lot of confusion. But then when puberty ends, a lot of people just kind of, they grow up really fast and then that's it for until, uh, you know, they get to middle age and go through another crisis, but it kind of solidifies the personality uh, on a, on a fairly low level and with limited interests and, uh, limited conscience and and so so Dabrowski, you know just describes the how these how this applies in a life cycle as well as on a more um, kind of not time sensitive issue so the things that'll just that can just come up at any period of life and then he also has sections on how to how to deal with children um, how to kind of guide children through this, through these processes and also how to deal, how to approach different cases of, um, psychiatric diagnoses with this. So like with some examples of, let's say obsessions or, um, um, anxiety or depression and how the theory applies in a kind of clinical setting. Then it gets into the historical personalities and that makes up the book. And there's a lot in between and a lot in there as uh, we can all attest to. Mm-hmm. Well, I like, the thing I like the best about Dabrowski is that you can choose these experiences. You can choose to be alert for them. You don't have to wait for them to break over your head like some disaster. Um, puberty is, is pretty much imposed mm-hmm. just because, but, and, the assessments of middle age are also somewhat imposed because, as you said, you, you can't escape the diminishing of, you know, bodily strength, mental agility, all of that. But in between those two, you can be alert and open to opportunities to shape your personality if you so choose. And that's, that's wonderful because it, it, it puts some agency back into your own hands as opposed to just being subject to what crashes in on your life. I think that's fantastic. Well, I was really impressed by the number of times, and I haven't gotten through the whole book yet, but Mm -hmm. um, uh, his bringing up the the subject of values, um, especially his concerning uh, multi-level development. Uh, This is a, a quote of his. Our capability of experiencing the feelings of veneration and esteem is one of the fundamental criteria of the development of personality. Without the feeling of a hierarchy of values above us and without an emotional attitude of esteem for these values, there would be no yearning for an ideal and, consequently, no action of dynamisms 
permitting the discrimination of various levels within our inner environment. The capability of experiencing the feeling of reverence is, as a rule, linked with the process of disintegration. So it, it's not just, um, you know, as we, as we reiterated a number of times, it, it's not uh, therapy or self-education or autotherapy or however, however you want to term it for the uh, aim of feeling better. Um, but it is for aligning yourself um, with uh, whatever is higher. Um, and you can call it uh, uh, spiritual development or growth or any number of different things um, that all kind of uh, amount to the, the same thing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, the aspiration for more. The aspiration for more and also uh, a recognition of what higher values are and, and mean. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if, you know, if you can use that as a starting point or reference uh, when examining your own behavior and thoughts and how you interact with people and what you're trying to do with yourself in life, uh, you're a little further along, I think. Well, uh, let's find another quote here. This one's on psychopathy. So, okay, so he's talking about psychopathic individuals. Integrated structures are also encountered among psychopathic individuals who, believing their morbid tendencies are hierarchically superior, subordinate to them all other dispositions and functions, adapting them more or less adroitly to the environment. A psychopathic individual usually does not know the feeling of internal inferiority, does not experience internal conflicts. He is unequivocally integrated. The kinds of integration just mentioned might be called, in the general sense, primary, non-evolutional forms of integration. When an individual with a tenacious structure goes through typical general biological phases, when unilateral interests develop in him, or so-called normal inclinations, or when possibly his psychopathological structure is improved, this does not mean that he actually develops, but that he merely attains this or that kind of ability, this or that form of the art of living. So, Robert Hare talks about this in a different way, discussing psychop psychopaths, by saying that they can't be treated. So he gives the example of psychopaths in therapy, because most, if not all, types of therapy used on psychopaths tend to only produce a better psychopath, because they learn more. They learn, they, they learn to become better mimics of, of what a, a so-called healthy or normal human is. So they convince their therapists that, oh, you know, I've found Jesus or, or whatever, I've and they the yeah, have seen the light and they, and they seem like better people. So they might be released and then they, you know, they get come back to prison if that's where they were. And they gain insight on human psychology as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're learning more about what human psychology is from the therapist saying, well, you know, this is, this is normal. And, you know, to, if you did this, this, and this, mm -hmm. and so they're, they're gaining, uh, yeah, more insight, uh, to, to better manipulate people. The um, uh, Dabrowski's 
ideas about uh, psychop- uh, psychopathy and, and psychopaths. And I think that's um, very unique to see uh, in, um, you know, most any psychological theory. You know, we're mostly taught that we all more or less have the same uh, internal landscape. And what Dabrowski is saying is, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, there are people who, who do think very differently, who don't have the same uh, possibilities for development, who, don't, who won't experience uh, events in the same way that, that we do. And understanding that and knowing that is really helpful because one of the uh, really common things that we do is project our own uh, internal landscape onto others. Uh, and, and that can cause, that's, that's the cause for all sorts of, uh, issues that, that come up in our lives. But when we understand that, you know, there is this real difference, uh, between, uh, in, 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 in people and that this exists, um, then, then we can kind of, you know, we, we can learn from that and, and, uh, kind of safeguard, safeguard our, our behavior and actions from that. Mm-hmm. Well, th- one more quote on this subject from this is describing why it's part, it's in the section describing why Dabrowski feels it's a it's good to um, take a look at historical individuals and personalities and kind of read their biographies and memoirs and letters and diaries and just get an idea of what what other people have gone through. So the study of historical personalities therefore gives us by contrast insight into the structure and dynamisms of outstanding criminal individuals and shows us the following fundamental differences. So these are the differences between the criminal's personality or individuals and the kind of the, the, the personalities who go through uh, a positive de- de- developmental process. So the criminal individuals reveal intelligence functions closely linked with primitive instincts. This is an intelligence in the service of instincts. The outstanding criminal individuals are deaf and dumb to aims and values other than their own, to the realization of which they often fanatically subordinate themselves. At the root of the activity of such individuals, there is sometimes a morbid, ambitional, or imaginational nucleus. So he's saying a few things there. Basically, that first of all, the intellect is totally at service or under under the the influence of the the primitive drives and instincts mm-hmm. so a psychopath can be very intelligent intelligent but that intelligence is fully directed in order to to get what the psychopath wants on a low level so they can be a, an immense intelligence perhaps but directed towards something like uh, something as bad as genocide well it wasn't wasn't a title of a book about the enron scandal called the smartest guys in the room yeah <laughs> yeah documentary Probably, probably based on the book. Yeah, yeah, but you know, so here's a group of highly intelligent people, but they're all of their strategies and and thought were towards mm-hmm. creating this giant, you know, fraud. Well, how about let's look at our president? Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy was uh, a constitutional lawyer, Harvard, Harvard graduate, right? So he, you know, he talks about uh, he was largely a, an advocate for the rule of law and the Constitution. And, uh, you know, has this progressive veneer and um, basically uh, lied and and hoodwinked uh, half the nation into voting him into office. Uh, When, in fact, uh, you know, 
we see that by the fruits of his actions, the man is is probably the most anti-constitutional uh, <laughs> leader uh, the U.S. has has ever had, bar none. Yeah. Um, but he's so congenial. He's got such a big, wide smile, and is so articulate when he makes his his speeches. He still manages to to fool so many. Um, so just just a case in point, I think, in describing uh, a very successful psychopath or something very close to it in our president, Barack Obama. I thought that uh, second half, there was something else in that quote that was really, really interesting, which is he touched a little bit on um, uh, the, the aspect of megalomania, mm-hmm. that these these guys just thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread and, and everything that they do was to support that vision of themselves. Mm-hmm. Morbid, ambitional, and imaginational <laughs> nuclei. Well, that brought to mind from Ponderology how Lobachevsky describes how these psychopaths have this kind of sick fantasy for society. Like they they want this this ideal utopia world where that's uh, really a dystopia mm-hmm. where they are those in charge and they can do whatever they want and not get caught for it and not be criticized for it, not be penalized for it, or they just have free run. And this is fantasy. Um, and the ambition, the ambition that drives that fantasy to become reality that we see today, where we see groups of individuals like this who are in, immense, in positions of immense power who can get away and do get away with anything. And, Personally, I think the biggest sign of this is just is the pedophile rings that we've seen in all the major Western countries that have been partially exposed and then brutally covered up with witnesses murdered and corrupt, dirty judges. Um, just uh, it's it's almost like another governmental organization, mm-hmm. only it spans the globe. Yeah, this this. This, these different groups organized, but they all have contacts with each other. They all help each other out. It's almost like a, like another country. Well, and they're so, linked by their psychology too, yeah. and you mm-hmm. know that, that's that's that providing like the unifying force mm-hmm. uh, throughout. And it's a system that's imposed itself worldwide. Mm-hmm. Well, horrible. On another level, there was a recent news story that came out on RT. Uh, Department of Homeland Security agent harassed. For investigating corruption in immigration program, um, and How dare uh, he? She, she, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so basically, uh, this um, this senior special agent uh, with the Division of Immigration and Customs, Taylor Johnson, um, part of enforcement for ICE, which is uh, what Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, stands for. Uh, testified before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs recently. Uh, She was at a hearing alongside with several other whistleblowers who claimed that they have also faced harassment for speaking out against their agency's wrongdoings. So, you know, basically she came across um, some corruption uh, and, um, and there were repercussions. She, she had her gun taken away, her, uh, her position taken away um and what she says is that some of the violations investigated surrounded uh, the project including bank and wire fraud 
and had discovered ties to organized crime and high-ranking politicians, and they received promotions that appeared to facilitate the program. So, I mean, she's part of this organization that at, at its very onset, at its very inception, was is a big lie, right? Because Homeland Security is designed to give people the perception that we needed an organization called Homeland Security. Secure the homeland against the evil forces that are Whatever aligned against us. Yeah. Precisely. We'll, we'll tell you who they are this week because they keep changing. And we, yeah. <laughs> we keep giving them money. <laughs> but it, it really, you know, and her story reminds me, not in the same uh, scope, but uh, reminds me a little bit of Sybil Edmonds and um, and her working for I guess it was the CIA, in FBI, the early, FBI in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. uh, coming across information. Um, she was a, a a translator. She spoke Farsi and then Turkish, and uh, and was basically booted from her position for pointing out certain things. Uh, so there's this culture, this mindset uh, that. Um, is psychopathic. It's like, don't, we're not looking to run a, uh, an, an organization with integrity. We're looking to function. You know, we have a function here. And you're disturbing the window dressing. Yes. And that's what happens when there's a society that pretty much lives without meaning. You know, it doesn't matter. They can say whatever, whatever they want and do whatever they want because there is no uh, deeper meaning to things that you know the, that the masses kind of look for. And they've created a society with no consequences. Mm-hmm. Here's another story along those lines uh, from Buenos Aires. Judge, judges Horacio Piombo and Ramon Salarguez of the Chamber of Criminal Cassation of Buenos Aires reduced the sentence of a child molester because the child, quote, displayed a homosexual orientation and was accustomed to being sexually abused, end quote. Toloso was the child's soccer coach when he raped the child. He had been sentenced to six years, but the judges cut the sentence almost in half because Tolosa couldn't be held responsible for, quote, the warped sexual development of the minor child, end quote. End quote. The six-year-old was called a cross-dresser by the judges before they went on to say, It is clear that the child's sexual choice, despite his young age and in light of the considerable testimony of those close to him, had already been made, end quote. These same judges reduced the sentence of a preacher that had raped a 14- and 16-year-old because the girls were, quote, from a social class in which sexual permissiveness was acceptable at an early age, end quote. Well, the, this speaks again to, to values and that these people in positions of power have no values uh, or little values. Um, Anti-human values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so yeah, first of, first, of course, there's the guy himself, the rapist, Tolosa, and then these judges who, <laughs> I mean, what can you say about guys like this? Well, there was a comment below the article that figures that he's probably part of some mm-hmm. following himself. I mm-hmm. mean, he's just he's just letting you know appear off. Well, and yeah, and ben, uh, Buenos Aires is um, it's already infiltrated with um, with sex, uh, sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. So, what these judges are are doing, they're you know they're creating this environment to for it to flourish, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sick. Oh, but and just because you were talking about Obama, Ilan, 
couple, uh, about a week and a half ago, this this story was just hilarious. Obama, um, oh god, he he could be a comedian if he wanted to. He could actually just change his title mm-hmm. to like uh, comedian in chief. There we go. And then it would just change the way people look at the words that he says and just realize how funny they are because they're so wrong. Um, so he said that uh, people don't remember when I came into office, the United States in the world opinion ranked below China, barely above Russia. And today, once again, the United States is the most respected country on earth. Part of that, I think, is the work that we did to re-engage the world and say that we want to work with you as partners with mutual interest and mutual respect. It's just like pure delusion. Yeah. Now, in case uh, Obama doesn't know, um, the U.S. is actually number 22 on the Reputation Institute's Most Reputable Countries, 2014. Now, number 22. So those with a strong reputation fill positions 1 to 9. Moderate rank uh, 10 to 20. So the U.S. is labeled weak in reputation. <laughs> now, but no, he got something partially right um, because the U.S. was rated number one in something. It was the greatest nation. Uh, it, was, it was voted the greatest threat to world peace mm-hmm. by a 2014 Gallup poll, global Gallup poll um, of 68 countries. So scoring three times higher than the next greatest perceived threat, Iran. Now, uh, yeah, we're number one. So, and as for the the idea of the U.S. improving its rank, it actually slid two percent from the previous year. The U.S. is becoming less reputable as we speak and breathe, which is understandable. I think. I think that works right to the megalomania. Delusion. Delusion. Well, getting back for a second to Department of Homeland Security, which is kind of an extension of uh, Obama and his powers. Um, there was uh, another article. This one came out about a year and a half ago. Uh, it was published in the Canadian Free Press by a Doug Hegman. Um, I guess, Harrison, you're happy to hear that some bit of truth is coming out of your country somehow. Yeah. But uh rare. Anyway, in, a, in an interview uh, that was that the um, journalist had to go to great trouble to arrange with a former uh, Department of Homeland Security employee, uh, he got this quote. He said, uh, DHS is like a prison environment complete with prison snitches, he said, referring to the search for leaks and leakers. This gets This also gets back to that story about the uh, woman who leaked uh, um, the improprieties going on recently. Uh, And the warden is obsessed. Ask anyone in DHS. No one trusts anyone else, and whatever sources might be left are shutting up. The threats that have been made far exceed anything I've ever seen. Good people are afraid of their lives and the lives of their families. We've We've all been threatened. They see the writing on the wall and are leaving. It's not a joke and not hype. And uh, what this Department of Homeland Security employee or former employee goes on to say, 
um, you know, he prefaces it by disregarding your peril. And then he goes on to uh, get into a lot of the um, really uh, awful plans um, that Homeland Security are a part of uh, in the U.S. and in claiming down and instituting martial law. Um, a couple of the things that he says is, according to every internal document I've seen and read, and from the few people I've spoken who would understand what's going on, preparations have been finalized to respond to a crisis of unprecedented magnitude within the United States. Uh, the response will include the use of lethal force against U.S. citizens under the instructions of Barack Obama. Um, and then he goes on to say, I don't mean to sound repetitive, but I can't stress this enough. Contrary to what you hear, we're already in an eco economic collapse, except that most people don't have a clue. The big bang comes at the end when people wake up one morning and can't log into their bank accounts, can't use their ATM cards, and find out that their private pension funds and other assets have been confiscated. I've seen documentation of multiple scenarios created outside of Department of Homeland Security. Different plans and backup plans. This is where we get a little conspiratorial, but let's see what else he says. Also, please understand that I deliberately use the word created, as this is a completely manufactured event. In the end, it won't be presented that way, which is extremely important to everyone to understand. What is coming will be blamed on some unforeseen event out of everyone's control that few saw coming or thought would actually happen. Then another event will take place concurrent with this event, or immediately after it, to confuse and compound an already explosive situation. And as I said, there are several scenarios, and I don't know them all. I know one calls for a cyber attack by an external threat, which will then be compounded by some something far removed from everyone's own radar. But it's all a ruse or a pretext. The threat is from within, he stated. Before people can regain their footing, a second event will be triggered. So... Uh, if it's to be believed, you know, this is coming from someone from deep within and entrenched inside of one of the organs of pathocracy and, uh, and planning, uh, inside the U S government. So what are this guy's credentials? The journalist or the department of Homeland security guy is who's the department of Homeland security guy. Oh, well, he, he gets his anonymous. Name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For the reasons given. So, I mean, that's a difficult thing right there because we don't know. Wait, yeah. You can just take it as a data point and something to be on the watch for without having to buy the whole story, but you can still have your radar up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, those are things that I would expect like Homeland Security to be doing anyways and um, to have been doing for a long time in the CIA before that and even currently. So I don't know. <laughs> I just, whenever I hear a, a, an anonymous DHS source, tend to say, oh, whatever, but... <laughs> well, as I said, you say whatever, but you just kind of stack it up against all the other stuff you're hearing and watch for the patterns. Well, that that was pretty much it for me, having read that article about the um, about the lady who came out to expose a little corruption. Mm -hmm. I mean, they came down on her so hard. Uh, it, it really spoke to uh, the intense um, environment of... Mm -hmm. of that organization and, and, uh, what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
Well, uh, getting back to countries that have a really high opinion of themselves, but, you know, but actually, you know, have awful reputations. Uh, there's actually a meeting of them, uh, this past Monday. They're all getting together. Yeah. They, they all got, they all got together. Apparently they drank banana flavored beer. (laughs) A bad reputation party. Yeah. It's called the, uh, G7, which fortunately is the G7 because, uh, Russia is no longer a part of that, uh, deplorable Western. They've been kicked out of the club. Yeah. Well, uh, Harper, he came out (laughs) with some pretty, uh, absurd and just ridiculous statements. Uh, like, Could be yeah. another comedian. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll tell you, he was probably, they probably said, look, you get to say this. We'll put you right in front of the mic and you get to say this and make yourself look Canada and on the world. He probably leaped at the chance. Yeah. He, he probably got all excited. And oh, God. Uh, so what his statement was, was basically that, uh, he, he warned Russia that, you know, they won't join the G7, uh, as long as Putin's in power and, you know, made all these kind of, uh, uh, strong oppositions, uh, that, you know, uh, that Russia was hard to get along with. And, you know, just these ridiculous statements that really are reflective of how the West acts and you know, just more of the same that, that we keep seeing. Um, but the, the whole, you know, the whole meeting was, was basically a, a, a Putin, a Putin bashing fest. And, um, and as well, they also got in some time with, uh, to, to bash China as well, of course. But, um, yeah, it didn't, you know, they, they, they what is it, what does the G7 do? Like they don't, they don't do anything for humanity. They're, uh, Clearly, yeah. Where's the list of the G7? What what would it be if it actually was the seven largest economies? Right. That's the whole idea. So the right. G7 are the seven heavyweights of the world economically. Yeah. That, well, that that kind of gets back to these countries that that have these overinflated ideas about themselves, <laughs> and because if if it was reflective of you know the actual powers, you know it would include China, it would include Russia, it would include Brazil and India. In India, mm-hmm. so where where else are we seeing these countries? Uh, uh, what, what are we seeing these countries do? And you know they're they're uh, forming BRICS, and uh, and BRICS will uh, it's you know it's estimated that the GDP of BRICS will outnumber outgrow uh, the G7, you know, just in a matter of years. So you know you have these dying dinosaurs, you know, who are who are really just like lashing out like uh, rats in a cage. And meanwhile, you know, the, these other countries are forming something real. Um, you know, you have the BRICS Development Bank uh, making progress. And, and the Asian Investment Bank, Industrial Investment Bank or something, AIIB. Mm-hmm. I think what's really hilarious is that the G7 and, and the West, led by the United States, is going, well, you can't be part of the club. So the rest of them go, okay, sure, you know, we'll make our own club. And then they get so angry about that. It's like, well, you can't go make your own club. You can't have your own bank. You can't do that. You know, we're the IMF. We're the, you know, the world this and the world that. And and they're just very quietly and, and even politely, at least on Putin's part, going, well, actually we can. So see ya. Yeah. And you see, you know, you do see uh, countries like China, you know, making more of a, a stand. Um yeah, the the South, uh, the China South Sea, you know, that's been more in the news lately. And you could kind of compare the ideology 
surrounding Ukraine and the U.S. inserting itself there and trying to destabilize that as a means of uh, creating this um, this blockade, you know, again, or so that they have this control over Eurasia. Well, you can kind of look at the South China Sea in the same light. Uh, that that's really the transit area for for Asia, mm-hmm. and so you see all these uh, these you know Western Westernized countries uh, like uh, Vietnam and the Philippines, and and now you know Japan's getting getting in on the action too with uh, you know, creating these these issues, which uh, around the South China Sea, which it's. Around piles of rock. It's around piles of rock, Just but rock. Like, it's it's right beneath China. I mean, these other countries do border it too. But when you look at the, you know, look at the size of China, look at all those those the people there. That's that's in my mind, you know, reason enough to say, okay, yeah, that does belong to China. And historically, it has. It's only been within the last uh, fifty years or so that you know, as the United States is. Um, inserted itself in these different countries that that these these conflicts have really come to the fore and you know so it'll be an interesting news story uh, as it develops but um well what's interesting also is uh the, the sheer amount of military force that's been deployed in that area of the south china sea i mean they're talking uh you know Space technology, uh, cyber attack technology. It's not just a few, um, you know, couple destro- of aircraft a couple, carriers, you know, and destroyers. I mean, this is, uh, e- you know, even if the U.S. doesn't want to engage in China militarily, um, it is, you know, boil it down, and it's just shark. Uh, it's stark. Uh, them bullying it's uh it's intimidation it's um it's look 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 at our bluster look at how upset we are uh with you and we'll go with any pretext whatsoever in order to to back it up well going along with that you know there there's a really interesting article uh on on sock called failing at the great game and there's a very interesting gem uh gentleman named oh, let me find it here um, Sir Halford McKinder, and he essentially invented in one grand lecture in like 1902 the, the idea of geopolitics and the and pretty much all of the strategies of the West, whether it was Britain or uh, passed on to the United States, have followed this plan, looking at the area of Ukraine into Turkey as a great pivot because if you look at the world what he did was turn the world around away from the states away from britain and say that from spain to japan is the biggest landmass in the world and the way to control and get and get access to all of the goodies of that landmass is to control this turkey to ukraine area central asia and that if you look at the the history of, of British interventions in India, in Afghanistan, if you look at the states now trying to go in and, and get Ukraine, it's all about controlling this area between Europe and Russia and the South Asia. Um, but China's doing a really interesting thing along with Russia. Uh, oh, and the way they have been con- enforcing that control is through the Navy, through controlling key straits, key shipping lanes, um, you know, whether it's in India, whether it's in the South China Sea, this is this is how it's been accomplished. 
Well, China took a look at that and said, okay. And instead of going toe-to-toe with them to try and control these shipping lanes, they say we have control over vast amounts of land territory, and they have invested billions upon billions of dollars as opposed to into the military, into long-distance, high-speed railways, connecting highways, so that they say, okay, go ahead and control the shipping lanes. We can go from Beijing to Portugal by land. So who cares? And Europe is, is waking up to this idea that if they want to get in on the next great bull market of the next century, they'd better get on board with this. And at the same time, they have been creating strategic alliances with small con- with small countries that happen to be located near these key straits and areas. And uh, it says in the last paragraph, finally, Beijing has recently revealed a deftly designed strategy for neutralizing the military forces Washington has arrayed around the continent's perimeter. In April, President Xi, uh, Xi Jinping announced the construction of that massive road rails pipeline. Oh, yeah, gas and oil. That's all in there, too. Uh, road rail pipeline corridor direct from western China to the new port in uh, Gwandar, Pakistan, creating the logistics for future naval deployments. So Pakistan's got a little bit of sea access, and they'll be able to do that. Um, and the energy-rich Arabian Sea. So in one deaf stroke, China will be ready to surgically strike through Washington's continental encirclement at a few strategic points without having to confront the full global might of the U.S. military potentially rendering the vast armada of carriers, cruisers, drones, fighters, and submarines redundant. So they're doing it smart, doing it peaceful, quiet, friendly, and countries are waking up to which way the wind is blowing. Well, you have uh, countries like the Philippines, um, you know, who it's, it's interesting that you said that the, uh, these geopolitical strategies uh, were kind of formed in 1902. Mm-hmm. It's around the same time the United States embarked on, you know, its first uh, imperial territory, which which was the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And you know, despite what amazes me is, despite uh, the the mass killing and genocide that was committed, you know, by the United States uh, in, in in the Philippines, that that today, you know, where, where is that memory? And the same with like Japan, mm-hmm. you know, uh, these countries go through tremendous suffering at, at the hands of, uh, of the U S and, and now, you know, we have the Philippines is, is like the, um, number it, out of any country that loves the United States, it's, it's, you know, the Philippines, um, and they're just so on board. And, uh, just recently is this past week, the, um, I think the president of the Philippines visited Japan and uh, compared China, China's actions to uh, Nazi Germany uh, in that, that their behavior was like Nazi Germany in, in the South China Sea. And the, the irony of this statement in Japan when he was meeting with, um, with Abe, uh, President Abe in, in Japan, is, is just, it's just, it's, it's overflowing uh, because this guy, uh, he's he's uh, just this ultra right nationalist who you know has these revisionist tendencies, fascist tendencies, 
And, you know, to make these comparisons to China, which fought against fascism, um, you know, it's just, it's just really bizarre and kind of a sign of, um, of all these things that we're seeing. Well, you know, that, that reminds me of Germany's being part of the G7. I mean, uh, you know, Nazi Germany is being held up as a standard for evil in the 20th century. And uh, here they are once again, uh, kind of obliging uh, the, the new uh, the new Nazis, the Fourth Reich, the U.S. Um, and so, you know, where where is the uh, where is the ability to discern uh, the the sameness or the differences between what what Germany was in the 30s and 40s and, and what the U.S. is today? And, and the old people remember. They remember because they can see it. Mm-hmm. But young people, they've been shielded from it. They've been propagandized. They've been fed, you know, sanitized education. It's, the memories aren't there to make the comparison. And also, when you talk about memories, you want to say whose memories. I'm not sure that, you know, if you went to a rank file of the Filipino citizenry, if that feeling would be the same. It's the leaders who are conveniently forgetting. Well, there was a statement in um, in the Philippines media just saying how bizarre the statement was, and you know just how backwards it was. Mm-hmm. And apparently, not everybody feels that way. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Any more news stories we've got? Mm. Oh, the Pope and Putin had a little sit down. Oh yeah, P- Putin got a a medal, Angel of Peace medal from the Pope. I thought it was pretty entertaining because there's just a whole bunch of just laughable interpretation of oh. what went what went down going around the, the Western media. Um, like, okay, first of all, the Pope greeted Putin in German. Now, like the, the this writer at the, the Daily Beast, um, Barbie, someone or other, she so. Well, it may not have been her. It may have been, you know, her headline writer, but the the Daily Beast headline writer headlined the article, Did the Pope Dis Putin? <laughs> now, okay, so at first I saw, I thought, I saw that and I thought, okay, because I knew the article was about about the Pope giving him a, a peace medal. So I thought, okay, well, maybe they're thinking that, that the peace medal was actually like a, a subtle hint that Putin was not peaceful. I said, well, you know, that wouldn't make much sense. But uh, so then I read the article, and it w- and the the whole speculation was around the fact that he greeted him in German, and that this gave certain commentators, um, you know, the the suggestion that maybe the Pope was subtly hinting to Putin that he sided with Germany and the United States against Russia in you know everything that's going down in the world. How about it's the one language they both spoke? Exactly. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> That would be such a simple, sensible explanation. They, they both spoke German. I know. Jeez. Well, not only that, but but there were, I saw another interesting article about this meeting, which is that Putin apparently was an hour late for this meeting. Now, the Pope, like any other head of a huge organization, has an extremely tight schedule. And yet he was willing, because of whatever had happened, to put his own schedule an hour behind just to meet with this man, mm-hmm. you know, so the Pope least, was probably excited to meet. Putin. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, bet he was. I'll bet he was. And also they, you know, and they talked a lot about, they do have a commonality and that uh, the Pope is very happy. He is supporting 
um, the protection of Christians because he has identified himself as a Christian. So he's, you know, helping out in Syria and helping out in other places where, mm-hmm. where they're having a tough time. And uh, this, this article, oh, I wish I printed it out. This article also spoke about the fact that uh, having uh, lived through Argentina's very bad times, he would have empathy for what is going on in Ukraine and a recognition mm-hmm. of the same situation playing out. So I'm, I'm a little, I have to say, I'm a little confused about who this guy Pope Francis is because uh, he, he was, I mean, it's said that he's been a collaborator the, uh, that's the with other the half fascist of it. forces of yeah. Argentina at the time. Yeah. And no, and no small, you know, I mean, it's, no small deal. I no, mean, he's, he's a mixed bag for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to suss out where he's coming from. So, I mean, I, I wonder if he's just kind of smart enough. To, that was at the be, end of the article. Okay. That the Vatican, in its own way, can carry a lot of weight around the world, and they also see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, it brings into question, in my mind anyway, uh, Italy and what their position towards Russia is, because you know, on the surface, they they do have this, uh, you know, this Western. Um, you know, hee haw with uh, the the sanctions, but on on the same token, we see this these kind of events happening. Uh, Putin is going to be in Rome, uh, so Italy is going to be greeting Putin, and so you know, are there are are the tides changing? Well, uh, Russia and Italy used to have a very very close relationship. And yeah, they still do. They still do. Under mm-hmm. the surface, they do. I mean, this whole sanctions business, they were coerced into, and mm-hmm. Putin did address that, saying he he regretted that Italy is suffering due to these, these quid pro quo sanctions that have gone on, gone on. And he would very much like to lift them depending upon how things go. It's mm-hmm. like, we didn't want to do this, but you know, you, this mm-hmm. happened to us and we could not let that go unanswered. On Italy, like Greece, you know, has suffered tremendously under the, uh, just the whole Eurozone. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're not in a good position uh, economically speaking. Well, maybe those are two, Pressure points, you know, Russia is very delicately working. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting, the the whole uh, peace medal, the mm-hmm. angel of peace. Apparently, um, Pope Francis gives these medals to a lot of heads of states when he meets them. But the only two specific articles I could see about them were in relation to this one in Putin and then last month with Abbas from Palestine. And, of course, last month the Vatican officially recognized Palestine. Mm-hmm. And so Francis had given this Angel of Peace medal to Abbas and just threw the Israelis into a hissy fit. Oh my God, how could you do that? What are you saying? Are you insulting us? I mean, because that's the first response to anything to Israelis is that they think they must be, must have been insulted in some way. And so, so the, the Vatican had to kind of, um, reassure Israel that we meant no offense to you by, you poor souls, you know, by just, thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you poor sensitive Israelis. <laughs> oh, we're very sorry. We, did, we didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Israel's feelings were hurt because it's very sensitive mm-hmm. and, um, the world is against it after all. <clears throat> mm-hmm. We are the shining beacon of democracy in the middle of the infidels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But apparently, Francis had said to Abbas that he uh, he called him you're like something like you're something of an angel of peace he said to to Abbas apparently you know some people overheard him saying this hard to say it, you know if he actually said it or not but so we've got him giving this medal to Abbas uh, supporting Palestine and then giving a, a similar medal to Putin 
Well, and really, who better to to give it to among world leaders than than Putin at this point? Because Putin is really the only one actively calling for peace. I mean, he's the one behind the Minsk agreements, the ones that the U.S. is so uh, like two facedly endorsing. I mean, the U.S. is saying that that Russia has to implement the the Minsk agreements. And that's absolutely hilarious because they weren't directly involved at all. I know. And they, they're the ones that wrote the, the Minsk agreements and they're the ones actually calling for their implementation. And they're the ones exerting influence on Don, Donetsk and Lugansk in order to, to fulfill them. And that's what, that's what the people's republics there are doing. They are fulfilling the agreements as laid out in the documents. And yet Ukraine has not fulfilled one of them. It is Ukraine Kiev since the very beginning that has been refusing to implement any of them. They've they've put up like a small appearance of of um, taking their heavy weaponry away from the front line, but they never got rid of all of it. And they are bringing in more weapons, and they've been shelling civilian areas for the past, for for weeks now. Now it's of course there were border clashes going along the whole time, but just recently the Kiev has has stepped up their uh, um, like unprovoked artillery um, bombardments. People are dying every day, and yet who do we see in the news saying this is unacceptable that the Minsk agreements are being blatantly violated and that Kiev needs to be sanctioned and you know brought to an international court, criminal court, and to be punished for what they're doing no one is saying that mm-hmm. now so what's going on there no oh, it's enough to make you want to scream uh, mm-hmm. it is. Like, um at the g7 one of the things that obama said was yeah russia needs to to stop um they need to stop violating the men's agreement yeah. and like uh, uh, really? <laughs> what, what? <Huh>? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Say what? <laughs> and and Russia's trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Oh yeah, that was the other good one. Oh, my trying goodness. to rebuild their empire. Well, you know, in a way, um, in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're, we're before the show we were talking about uh, Russia and uh, how you know it's been it's been really remarkable to see uh, Russia's recovery and uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, there are so many parts uh, within within Russia, you know, that just were like kind of operating on their own or really not operating. And uh, as Putin came into power, uh, you know, he would make these visits to all these different regions and really shore up, um, you know, all the things that were going wrong and and really unified uh, Russia. Now we were, we were discussing the idea that if, if countries have personalities. You could say both the U.S. and Russia are undergoing disintegration, but Russia has managed to make something out of it with, if you want to, you know, cast him in that role with Putin as the advisor that, you know, by the time Yeltsin left, as you say, all these regions were running autonomous, autonomously. There was corruption everywhere. The people were suffering horribly. And... And Putin was basically thrust into this role, and he immediately started to go to each region and and really listen to that region and say, okay, what are the problems? What do you need? What's going on? And sometimes he was able to do it gently, and sometimes he had to just call the corrupt leaders on the carpet and 
and yet not, you know, throw a lot of them into jail, although a lot of them went to jail, but to, to encourage and steer and create the conditions for improvement. And as each region improved, then it became easier to get them to work with each other and then for all of them to work towards this common goal of having, you know, a, a prosperous, peaceful, happy place to be living. That's what he wishes people all the time. When you watch a lot of his interviews, he always ends with, you know, I, I wish happiness for you. And that's his goal. Well, it's like with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union itself underwent a disintegration. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's actually, it's not just an analogy because I think that the dynamics of positive disintegration are, personally, I think they're probably somewhat embedded in the structure of the cosmos in a sense that, mm-hmm. that it's, it's applicable to, to multiple levels into various different phenomena. And it's just very obvious on the, on the human level because we're, we're humans and that's what we experience, but we can, we can see these dynamics in play in other, uh, either natural, so-called natural phenomena or societal. You know, I don't know how far the analogy goes between the two, but we can kind of work with it a bit, uh, the way I see it. So the, the Soviet Union kind of disintegrated and, it was kind of a unilevel disintegration because there were all these different conflicts. It was broken up, but there wasn't a there wasn't a part of Russia that was higher than the other parts in order to reintegrate at a higher level. It was just this so-called democratic, liberal, chaotic mayhem that was going on. The only like viable uh, so-called solution was to have the Americans come in and rule the place and and then dominate it as. Um, you know, some kind of vassal state. Loot it. Loot it, yeah, and not solve any of, of the problems that were actually going on. And so what actually, what would, the way I see it, what happened was that, so here comes Putin, and Putin was kind of acting as the, uh, well, I'll use a few, uh, like a, a few Dabrowski terms, three of the dynamisms that Dabrowski talks about at a high level. We talked about a bit last time, one of which is the subject object in in oneself. So this is the part of, it's kind of the, the observer in the self, the part of the self that observes the self, observes the inner environment. So that differentiates within oneself, you know, what is me and what is not me or what, you know, what is not yet what I want to be or whatever. It's the observer. And there's the third factor. Now, the third factor is comes after the or ended in addition to the first and the second factors so these are the factors that kind of uh influence or determine certain things in our lives so the first fact would be biology so this is just our inherited biological tendencies and instincts that we're just born with now second factor would be the environment the social environment so these are the cues that we pick up from each other and from society in general and most people are pretty much limited to those two factors they're run by their biology they just run on automatic and um, and also by society around them, social standards and expectations and family standards and things like that. The third factor is the, the part that comes in and actually evaluates the things that, the, that you see in, in the subject object. So you can actually evaluate those, those biological and social influences on oneself and then choose whether to act or not act out any of those influences or stimuli. So the the third factor, it, it, consci- it consciously takes part in directing one's own evolution, and it, it 
it can it comes in conflict with the first and second and second factors. So if I want to consciously um, direct my evolution in a sense, it's going to come in conflict with my with my biology and with social expectations every once in a while, if not a lot of the time. <laughs> and so that's that's where we have this factor of independence from outside forces and outside influences and even inner influences because my my body or my um, just my my instinct or my my habits will often um, basically tell me to do something like oh you know this is what you want to do this will this will this will feel good or this will make you comfortable so this is what you should do that's not always the best choice though mm-hmm. if there's something higher in oneself that that you're striving towards and so the third kind of um, the third aspect of these these dynamisms that all kind of interact with each other is the disposing and the directing center, disposing and directing center. So this is the part that actually decides on the course of action based on the evaluations made by the third factor, based on the observations made by the subject object. So we've got this observation, this evaluation, and then this action that, mm-hmm. that bases, that is based on those. And so this is the role that Putin has played in Russian politics the last 15 years to observe what's going on in the country to evaluate how things where things aren't living up to 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 an ideal standard or or even a workable standard and then to implement the the uh, to give basically give the orders for what to do in order to make it better Mm -hmm. and russia didn't have that and most countries don't have that right i mean we've got it in at least in name (laughs) yeah We've got we've got the people that pretend to do these things, yeah. but they don't actually observe the, the problems, or if they see them, they don't see them as, as problems that need solutions, and they can't evaluate those problems once they see them. Look in the United States where we've got um, just the, the surveillance, the poverty, the, 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 the inner conflict and, and violence um, between levels of society and different aspects of society, between police and citizens. There is... It's just a sick culture from bottom to top, and yet no one in positions of power is is decisively observing the problem and evaluating where the problem is, so actually seeing it as a problem and then taking the step to make to take action in order to do something about it. And I think you nailed it right there is that the leaders, large quotes, really don't see it as a problem. I mean, it's not registering in their consciousness. I mean, they'll give lip service to it anytime one group or another gets really loud, but it's not anywhere on their list of, of priorities mm-hmm. to be solving these problems. There's, well, there's and no it sense might, of it. And it might not even, it seems that they don't even have the capacity to, to see, uh, to see these things and, and to, like you're saying, you know, have that evaluation of uh, what needs to be done and, and to bring in, you know, some morality, mm-hmm. some, some higher level functions uh, to, to society. Well, there's a story uh, about a Russian, uh, I think he was either a member of parliament or um, he was in some political office. And he came out a few months ago to say that he thought that all politicians in Russia should first undergo a kind of a, a psychological screening yeah, I think it was a, somebody finally it was said a, it. It was a yeah. woman, uh, a female politician there. No, I think it was a guy. Well, then there were two of them because there was one. That, yeah. <laughs> well, it, then if it's two, it, it's a testament to I think the amount of uh, um, consciousness raising or sense of responsibility or a, ability to look at itself that you have these two politicians in Russia. 
that are recognizing the problem or part of the problem for what it is. Mm -hmm. And that is that you have all of these elected leaders who are in these huge positions of responsibility who don't give a hoot, who are just there to, to, to serve themselves. Yeah. I've, I have never heard uh, before or since uh, anybody in politics ever <laughs> talk about, you know, screening other politicians for psychopathy. We've been saying it for a decade. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yes. Well, the, the other thing I think is, is really interesting is that, is that Putin had a, a unique set of materials to work with in that uh, when you talk about cultural and social things, which is, you know, you scratch the surface of communist Russia and you have a very, very old Christian society. And he's been able to appeal on that basis to these traditions of, of religion and family and love of your neighbor and all of that and say, this is how it looks when it's applied politically. And, and, I think that's that's given him a tremendous boost is that that was always there latently. Um, the states, yeah, there's yeah. a certain amount of base, but it's kind of Calvinist and warped, and I don't know how well that would work. But <laughs> the the resources in Russia, uh, both you know from their culture and also you know their natural resources and their previous position as a, a world power. Yeah, I think those things all contributed uh, to uh, Putin's ability to, to accomplish these things uh, because if, you know, if they were a smaller country uh, that, you know, there's, there's so many, you know, the list is endless that, you know, has just been dominated by the United States and they haven't been able to, um, you know, regain their autonomy uh, because, you know, it's, it's just the force is so strong. So I think uh, I think there were a lot of elements like that that kind of came together um, to to create the the situation. But the most important being that yeah, that there, there was this this nucleus uh, that was able to have this capacity for insight and and to be able to do and accomplish these things. And it's it'll be interesting to see if Putin is able to do. Uh, to continue uh, these actions on the world stage, uh, so he's he's accomplished all this for Russia, and you know you see for the past years he's also been doing the same thing uh, with with other countries. So you know maybe to try and give them the space to to find their own footing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there was a <laughs> there was another great article. <laughs> Hope you got it. That uh, it, it asked the question: If you were, if you were a world leader, or how did it go? Is something who would Putin and Lavrov talk to? And the conclusion of the article is: There's nobody on the world stage for these very sane, intelligent people to talk to. And the only reason they have to pay attention to the states and to the you know gaggle of vassals behind them is because they have some very destructive capabilities but if they weren't possessed of those they'd probably just flat out ignore them yeah they should be ignored it would be i mean it would just add a lot more humor to geopolitics <laughs> at some point you know we we may get there putin invited to the white house has yeah. better things to do. <laughs> you see, no, I think what they should do, Putin should just take all the internet memes about him, you know, like ignoring phone calls and stuff, and then just 
put them up on his on his Facebook page and and just make you know make them reality because <laughs> because the the memes actually tell the truth. If you haven't learned, you know, all the secrets of the universe are contained in internet memes. And <laughs> true that. Yeah, it's it must be terribly terribly discouraging for them to uh, look out on the world stage and just think there. This is the caliber of people we have to deal with is so abysmally low. Oh. And unprofessional. That is the ultimate insult. <laughs> the unprofessional handling of the situation in Ukraine. I mean, that's got to be the worst thing Putin could ever say about you. <laughs> He's gracious even in his own insults. I think it goes kind of right by them. How deeply, how deeply that word has meaning for him. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll just read a little bit more from the book before we end for tonight, today, this morning. This one is a little bit on uh, love and friendship. Because like like I'd mentioned, uh, for Dabrowski, this is one of the universal traits of personality. So something that everyone should strive for. So another basic individual quality is represented by lasting emotional bonds of love and friendship. Bonds symbolized by the platonic myth of two halves of the soul. The best example of such, con- of, suf- of such conjunction are the bonds between Christ and his disciples, or his apostles. Now right there I'd, I'd let, put a little caveat that uh, I'd say a better, a better analogy would be between Paul and his disciples, because we don't really actually know anything if much about about Jesus and his disciples, um, everything we think we know is from uh, like the Gospels and, and Acts written a hundred years after the events allegedly took place. So we actually know a bit about Paul and his disciples and or brothers and sisters, as he would call them. And there's actually a, an example of that if you read the letters, just to see just to see the connection and the bonds that formed in those communities. So the quote goes on. In common life, we encounter such individual or group unions of a higher order of spiritual tension in the love between married people, in the fraternal and sisterly unions, and in friendly in the friendly unions between individuals not related who go side by side desiring the realization of a common idea. So I just thought that was a good a good quote because that's something it kind of it kind of warms the cockles of my heart mm-hmm. because that's that's what we try to do. We're we're I mean us here the, a, a bigger a bigger organization a bigger group. Um, that's that's what we try to do is we do have a common goal and we work together. And that's I think that that's what people need and that's what people are missing in their lives is that connection to a, a wider community, not necessarily limited to just their family, because people can have crazy families and people often do have crazy families where just totally dysfunctional relationships. That uh, with no common goal and no mutual support, no common understanding, and it seems that just the way that our societies are structured doesn't give a, a good template or ideal for family life. And that if we want something that uh, a group union, a group relationship like that, that actually, that's actually going to be fulfilling in any sense and doing any kind of good work, we're going to have to look to to you know broaden our our family to those not necessarily related by blood so i just wanted to point that out and then also i'll read one more little bit this is on um 
intellect. So I wanted to, to read this quote last week because we talked about about intellect kind of in service of of lower lower instincts and lower drives, and then we mentioned it also today. But there's an alternative too. So I'm just going to read uh, a couple paragraphs here. So in connection with these processes, this is kind of just disintegration in the will or in the intellect, sorry. The intelligence ceases to be coupled with basic protopathic, protopathic emotionality, so just basic uh, low-level emotionality, with primitive subcortical emotionality, automatic emotions, um, you know, subcortical, not under conscious control. But after the dissolution of these conjugations with the forms mentioned and after the phase of disintegration, it conjugates or joins gradually with higher forms of the aspirational and affectional structures and remains at their services. This is a transition from the phase of intelligence at the service of instincts to the phase of intelligence at the service of personality. The new conjugation of intelligence weakens the tendency to commit errors arising from reasoning corrupted by instincts, weakens the, sub the subjective attitude in judgments, removes egocentrism, and the tendency to bring forth those arguments in polemics which, through an unskillful grouping, give the appearances of truth, throwing light only on part of it. The intelligence, when acting in the service of personality, and when coupled with understanding and love, provides a basis for objectivity, broadens one's horizons of thought, increases the capacity for knowing people, and removes obscurity caused by the instincts. This approach is sorry this approach is in conformity with the content of the chapter on love from the first letter of saint paul to the corinthians whom we just mentioned love does not do anything indecent does not look for its own gain is not quick-tempered does not think evil does not enjoy seeing injustice but enjoys seeking truth end quote in contradistinction to the conjugations of intelligence with instincts where, as a rule, one does not seek the objective right, but only one's own right, the new conjugation of intelligence subsequently leads to objectivity in thinking. So there, Dabrowski is basically saying that in order to be really objective, you need a conscience. Because without a conscience, without the ability to, to see and evaluate values, mm -hmm. to be able to just evaluate reality, to have values about things, and higher or lower appraisals of what's going on we can't see the world objectively and therefore we can't make objective choices about what we do in this reality and so i think that's uh it gives a a good alternative and puts into perspective that that use of intelligence at a very low level just to get very practical um self-serving things done mm -hmm. and so there is there is an option but it it has nothing to do with just going to school and learning a whole bunch of stuff and becoming, you know, this master um, computer-like intelligence of, of logic and, and uh, you know, like a, just like a computer. Um, that's not what it's about. To be objective, you actually need a conscience, you need a soul, and you need to be a complete human. Well, if you think about how a computer thinks, it only acts on the information that's fed into it. And if the instincts are doing the feeding, mm -hmm. giving the information, giving the, the, the goals, then you can't help but come out with a mess. Mm -hmm. Look at the States. 
Oh, and just one little bit too, because I like that little bit about debate and polemics. Because I, just a little personal story, I always thought that debating was like the most ridiculous thing ever. Um, no, I can see some of the possible positive aspects of debating, but it just struck me as totally wrong in order, like to, to take a position that may or may not be true and then to argue it regardless of its truth or falsity and just to convince other people that you're right about your position, even if you might be totally wrong. It just, that just, uh, that's a bit absurd. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, this is what, uh, this is what Dabrowski wrote about that. Um, let's see. Okay, I'll just start at the beginning. It might not make sense until we get to the middle. The conflict of the material interests of individuals and groups in the world of organized communities leads in general to the use of more or less camouflaged threats, various systems of propaganda, and different forms of ideological fighting. At a considerably higher level, there occurs a clash of opinions, convictions, and views. However, we usually also contact at this stage subjective arguments of the opponents, which are based on material and personal interests involving prestige. The fighting individuals or parties look for the weak points of their adversaries, direct the spears of their arguments, not to the essence of the matter, but to points which are in fact secondary and whose importance for the problem is only apparent. Socratic irony used in such cases does not aim at bringing the light at bringing to light the essential truth, but only such, quote, truth as a fighting individual or party wants to prove. So that that's what really gets me, is when, we, when you see someone arguing a point just in order to win the point, to win the argument, which is just totally wrong. I mean... Well, it's like a game, right? Yeah. And the, the concern isn't over, yeah, what is truth, and, and what is lies, but it's it's over being right, you know. Exactly. And and it, it's it's I I totally get what you're saying with it being infuriating because, you know, when you have these real issues, you know, uh, being discussed and you know reading some Facebook thread and you know talking about maybe Palestine or the issue in Ukraine and and you see people dealing with this as if they were approaching uh, a sports game. You know, it it's maddening. Yeah. When you see somebody throw in a you know some bomb of a comment just to watch the mayhem. Mm-hmm. Ideological anarchy. <laughs> okay, well, we're two minutes over, so we're going to end it there. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back next week. We may or may not have a show about um, aliens. I think uh, I want to do a show about aliens. So we were okay. kicking around the idea. We'll see if we're feeling out there. Yeah, so uh, I think we should do it. Let's yeah, plan to do it. I, I think it sounds good. So, yeah, next week, aliens will uh, we'll be taking questions as usual. So if you'll you'll want to ask because there's a lot of questions that people can ask about aliens. And uh, it's always fun to talk about stuff like that. So tune in next week. Tune in tomorrow. We've got... Uh, uh, behind the headlines tomorrow, then Friday, health and wellness show. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. So buy the book, Personality Shaping. It's available on Amazon, and we'll see you all later. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>